Howdy, howdy, and thanks for checking out episode 73 of the Eyes Free Sports Podcast. As usual, my name is Greg Lindbergh. Here on episode 73, we are visiting with an extreme endurance athlete, a gentleman who has uh, some pretty amazing accomplishments to his name, especially when it comes to running and marathons and uh, just uh, so many different things he's done uh, throughout his adaptive sports career. So let's go ahead and strap on the tether and start running now into episode 73. All right, so joining me here on this episode of the podcast is Jason Romero, and Jason is a is an extreme endurance athlete, runner, marathoner, also published author, motivational speaker, a lot of uh, a lot of great things this guy has done. Jason, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Greg. I appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. Really excited to dive into your story. I know you've uh, done some really unique things in your life and uh, certainly related to adaptive sports. Uh, so super excited to, to have you on here. I can't wait to get into it with you. Thanks for having the podcast too and getting this information out to your audience. I, I think it's commendable what you do. Hey, that means a lot. I appreciate that. So why don't we just start kind of from the beginning here as far as your your story, your early life, and just talk to me about uh, where you were born and grew up. Sure. So I uh, am a Denver, Colorado native, which is where I reside right now. Sitting in Denver, hometown boy, 52 years old. And um, I have one brother uh, raised by a single mom. And she taught me about work ethic, hard work, and the meaning of life with you, if you will. Uh, I have a lot of, a lot to attribute to my mom. But one of the things that we do have in common, and I think which does come up in this podcast is I was diagnosed at 14 with a eye disease called retinitis pigmentosa. And it's a degenerative eye condition. And it was kind of interesting because that was, you know, there have been many different things in my life that have dramatically impacted my life. But that was kind of like the first big thing, if you will, that I had confronted up to that point in time. And at that point when I was 14 and I was diagnosed, I thought I saw perfectly fine. I, I, I kind of didn't, but uh, the news that was delivered to me was I would be lights out blind. By the time I was 30, I probably wouldn't work. I needed to learn something to do with my hands. And uh, I was excused from the, the retina specialist office. And that was my introduction to this, um, this journey, if you will. And it was pretty shocking. It's kind of interesting too, because now when I tell that story and I, I talk to other uh, doctors or specialists, they're kind of, you know, shocked. Um, and I think just, you know, a lot, we, we've come a long way with disabilities, people having challenges and understanding what is possible and, you know, that, that a disability really is not a, a death sentence or, a, um, you know, a, a, a statement that your life has to change a trajectory. So anyway, that's, that's kind of quick and early. That was the early years. Sure. Sure. And then, so as far as schooling, so I assume you were mainstream, you know, after your diagnosis in high school and whatnot. After I was diagnosed, uh, I was never on an IEP. I always looked like I could see kind of the, with red nice pigmentosa, it's characterized by losing your peripheral eyesight. You end up with tunnel vision that shrinks down to like straws, pinholes, and supposedly nothing if your eyesight totally goes. And you also have night blindness. And sometimes you have acuity issues, which apparently I had at the time. I At that point in time in my life, I was, you know, night blind. And then I had acuity issues. And, you know, my eyesight always ranged around 2080, 2100 around, you know, when I was in my teen years anyway. And I went, I went to mainstream school. What was interesting was the the diagnosis was actually really good for me in school because when I was in school, uh, I could never see the chalkboard. It was a chalkboard in my day, not like a whiteboard. I mean, I have computers in the classroom. Right. So that kind of dates me. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I, you know, with on the chalkboard, the teacher would always write notes or math equations. I couldn't see it. And I never thought anybody else could see what they're writing. And I was like, this is the dumbest thing. I don't get why the teacher's writing this stuff when nobody can see. Like I thought, I thought everybody saw like I saw. Hmm. And in English class, you know, sometimes the teacher would tell the students, okay, pull out your books and read for a half hour. And 
I couldn't see the, the words on the page. And so I would pull out my books like everybody else. And they were flipping through the pages. And when everybody else flipped their page, I would flip my page. And I thought everybody would just, was just pretending to read. And I didn't understand that I couldn't see. That's what, and so when the diagnosis happened, it actually helped and it made sense a lot for me in those formidable years growing up. So anyway, I did end up going to mainstream school. I did end up going to college at the University of San Diego. I ended up going to law school and then was a lawyer for a little bit of time. I realized after a few years, you know, being a litigator and in a fight every day was not my cup of tea. So I switched over to a business career. I worked Went to work for General Electric. I worked there for 10 years, went through a variety of different things, ended up moving to Puerto Rico as the general manager for GE Capital. I ran that down in the Caribbean. It was a good gig. Wow. Very neat. And uh, came back to Denver, worked for Western Union. I ran their global core operations for a bit of time. Then I ran a nonprofit for kids with autism. One of my kiddos has autism. And then I my, my eyesight deteriorated. I ended up in a severe, severe depression. I couldn't deny my eyesight anymore. And hmm. that launched a transcontinental run from Los Angeles to New York. And now I'm a keynote speaker. That, that's the story for how I got here. As I look back, I'm like, I, I couldn't have, <laughs> I couldn't have seen where I would end up now from, you know, back then, but I, I love right. my life now. So it's great. Wow. Wow. And I am curious if you don't mind what, around what age were you, you mentioned, uh, you know, deep depression and just kind of really finally accepting your, your vision loss. Yeah. So, and one thing too, like I, I distinguish sight, eyesight from vision because my eyesight, I, I have lost. That's in pretty rough. That's a rough condition, but my vision you know, I, I, I have not lost my vision for life or my vision. You know, my, my vision is about having dreams, um, continuing to live a vibrant life and, you know, going after it and getting after it. But my eyesight, that's a different deal. Uh, for depression, I think when I was four, when I was in my teenage years, when I first was diagnosed, I just went into denial and I didn't list that eye doctor. I was like, whatever, I'm going to continue with life. But then I realized, you know, all of a sudden I couldn't, I could drive during the day, but I couldn't drive at night. Uh, I got kicked off the nighttime football team. They let me play during the day, but you know, I have a story for my nighttime football game that I could share with you later on if you like, but you know, things changed and I, I wasn't able to go on dates to, you know, at nighttime to go pick up the girl and, you know, drop her off at home. And yep. you know, there were things like that. So I was going through some really tough stuff and I didn't have anybody to talk to. I didn't know about therapy at the time. So I think I was, I was always existing in a mild state of depression, but yeah, I was just also massively in denial. When a severe depressive episode hit me, I was diagnosed when I was 14. When I turned 44, I stopped driving altogether. I was driving in the daylight and I just about ran over a family of four as a stop sign. And I was stopped at a stop sign. I turned to the left, turned to the right. There was nobody there. I took my foot off the brake and the car just started to move forward with the idling. And this family of four darted in front of my car. I slammed on the brakes and I was freaking out and they were laughing. It didn't even affect them. But to me, I, I was sitting there like, I know that I looked where they came from and they were not there. And maybe hmm. with my eyesight, with the tunnel vision, if I don't move just far enough, like one degree more, they may have been standing right there. And I, what I realized, like, I can't do this anymore. Like I, you know, stopping driving was massive. And I, you know, I stopped immediately. I was divorced at the time, had three kids going three different schools. You know, yeah, I, I had lost my last job at that point in time. I had gotten a letter from the federal government say I was permanently and totally disabled and just, a severe depressive episode hit me. And, you know, that was probably for a good couple of years, I was working my way through that. But, you know, that that's kind of my journey with that. I, I, I think, you know, I think anybody with a, with a challenge or a disability, if you will, does have at least a mild level of depression that they work through and they continue to fight through. And at some point in time, you know, it, it hits us. I was just talking to a lady earlier today and, um, she was in a car accident, has like a bunch of spinal cord things. And she was telling me about, you know, when, when life transitioned from being the typical or conventional way of doing things to having to do things different so you can do everything, uh, everybody else does. It's tough. And, uh, I definitely went through that journey. 
Right, right. I appreciate you sharing that and, and your transparency on that front. And, and the thing I would say too, Greg, is even like, you know, that was when I was 44, I went through this severe thing, but I'm 52 now. And I think that I'm still always working, you know, even day to day on managing uh, depression. You know, one of the, when I went through my severe episode, uh, I did end up in a therapist's office, a guy by the name of uh, Marty and his psychologist. And he helped me tremendously through that. And I would recommend to anybody, you know, that if you're going through something like that, seek professional help and find a, you know, find a good one. There's not always good matches. I got lucky and matched up good with Marty. I've been to some others that um, did, I didn't match as well as with Marty, but if you get a good professional person to help you get through that, you know, you can make progress and you, know, you don't, you don't do it alone, I guess. I'm sure that's such, so, you know, powerful advice and, they say most people that need help never get it. And so that's, I uh, appreciate, you know, that, that advice and your experience. So let's transition on to sports. Um, so I know you did reference uh, football, I guess you had played and kind of rewinding back to your childhood. What kind of sports did you play growing up? Yeah. So as a kid, I played football and baseball and then I don't you know non-traditional sports whatever was going on at the park you know like dodgeball yeah. like basically a typical kid if you will but um I really loved football when I got on into you know in, in my day it was all rec it wasn't like now they have like these competitive leagues so sure. you kind of played rec and then in high school I wrestled which i really loved but i also stayed with football and that was kind of like you know the quintessential sport that you ended up playing you know in my day if you know you're young male because it was kind of like the hot thing then but um i have a great story with my with, with my eyesight uh it was the very first football game i played for the thomas jefferson spartans in denver colorado and i was on the kickoff team and uh, I played offensive and defensive uh, positions as well, but uh, it was the first nighttime football game that we had. And it was at all city stadium, which is like the, the big stadium that all the schools use. Right. Um, you know, there's bleachers and all that. And, you know, there's the lights, the track around, it's kind of like, you know, Friday night lights yo, and yo. everybody's cheering, you know, a Friday night game and you're, you're stoked. You know, it's like my first night game and, I remember it was a kickoff for the beginning of the game and I was on the right-hand side and I was like the outside guy couldn't get outside of me. And the kicker was going to kick the ball to my side of the field. And I was like, this is going to be awesome. You know, I'm going to run down, I'm going to make the tackle and it'll be great. You know, I, I, you know, and I, I was so pumped up for that moment. I remember you know, the ref blew the whistle and the, Kenny was the kicker's name. He ran up, boom, you know, I could hear the ball thud and I just, you know, ran as hard as I could close my eyes and, you know, just ran in. I, I couldn't see the ball when it was in the lights. I could kind of see the white stripes around it, but as soon as it went up into the you know dark sky, I, I lost, I couldn't see it at all. So I ran down in a straight line as fast as I could as waiting to collide you know, with people, you know, the, the blockers and then get past them and tackle the guy. And there was nobody there. You know, I was like confused. And all of a sudden I hear the whistle blow I'm like, what happened? I was like, how is the play over? You know, did Kenny shank the ball like out of bounds or something? What, you know, I didn't know what happened. And the, right. the coach was like yelling at me, Romero, what are you doing? You know? And uh, <laughs> that, that was back in the day when the coaches used profanity. And you know, as I got some profanity, I was like, oh, yeah. coach, you know, I was like, I ran down. Kenny was kicking it to the right. He's like, he shanked the ball. You know, so he's supposed to kick it to the right. He went to the left of the field and I, I couldn't tell where the ball was going. So I was the only person standing over there and he's like, what were you doing? Why did you do that? Why didn't you follow the ball? I was like, I can't see at night. Like I got this eyesight thing. He's like, you can't see. I was like, no, I'm like night blind. I got, and I tried to do a quick X play. He's like out of the game. You're never playing a night game again. And that was the end of my nighttime football. <laughs> <laughs> and it was kind of depressed. I was like, dang it. Like that stunk. I still played during the, the day games, but you know, that was, that was a real thing. And you know, that, that was before the days of accommodation stuff like that. And, you know, I, as I look back at it, I'm like, wow, there were some things where this really did impact me. And I didn't, you know, I, as I was going through my younger days, I never really thought of it as a disability or something like that. That just wasn't my mindset. My mom never, 
let me uh, think of myself that way. So I didn't have the mindset of, you know, I'm disabled. I need, I need to do all this different stuff. I just did everything everybody else did, but there were definitely things that I was excluded from now that I look back and, uh, and I had feelings and I had emotions and I was confused and I didn't understand them. And I just, you know, struggled with it, but I, I just kept going at it. Sure. Sure. But Hey, you know, kind of on the flip side, it is cool. They did still allow you to play somewhat. And in spite of, uh, you know, at least some, some type of low vision at that point, I, I was like 140 pounds. They put me on the line, you know, linebacker. <laughs> and, and there are a lot of times too, it was tough because I couldn't see where the ball was at and, and I didn't have the acuity to be, you know, I would see people colliding. So I would really run wherever the action was. It was kind of like, you know, right. a, a big game of, you know, you know, smear the ball. And <laughs> I, you know, so I ended up in collision and the coaches just always thought I was so tough. Cause I always went wherever the action was. I was like, well, that's my way of not getting pulled out of the game again. I never told them that. But, you know, I knew if I was wherever the action was, they were like, okay, you know, Romero's sacrificing his body. At least he can stop something. And, you know, that's, right. that was my strategy <laughs> for yes. better or worse. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's, you know, obviously you made some type of impact to, to be able to play at least here and there. So. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was good. And, and wrestling actually was a good sport because there you really didn't, I didn't need eyesight and it was all about technique and you know, I could do that with my eyes closed. Like I didn't have to see, I could tell from my proprioceptive awareness where my body was at, where my opponent was at and you know, what I needed to do. And I love the training associated with wrestling too. It was just, you know, get, it was nonstop training. The more, the harder you work, the better you got, you could do technique, 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 but it was also the cardiovascular fitness of, you know, going for three periods, full tilt, you know, most of the time everybody wore out of steam by you know, halfway through the second period and the third period for sure, everybody was gassed. And that was kind of like my strong suit. If I get to the third period, most of the time I was winning matches. Wow. Very cool. Uh, so when it comes to adaptive sports, let's talk about uh, just kind of your introduction to, you know, competing in adaptive sports and, and definitely curious about the endurance, uh, you know, as far as running sure. marathons, how you got into all that as well. Well, I, I took a hiatus from athletics, probably from, from high, right after high school. Like I really didn't, I played rugby in college, but that was more of like, a, I'm not sure he played so much. I think we drank a lot more and partied a lot more. <laughs> the rugby parties were the best. You, know, you, you do like, they turn you upside down. You had to you know be upside down on a keg trying to drink a beer. Go figure. <laughs> uh, somehow I survived all that. But yeah. um I uh, kind of took a hiatus from like serious sports or what I considered more serious, a serious approach to sports after high school until probably like in my mid thirties. And um, when I was in port, when I moved to Puerto Rico, GE, uh, one of my children has autism and we had started a school for him. He was getting ready to enter kindergarten and really there wasn't a school for kids with autism there. So we started one and as a fundraiser, I signed up to run a marathon and I was totally out of shape. Like I, I was a mess. I, you know, I was <laughs> drinking rum and Coke, smoking cigars, eating fried foods. Right now I'm probably about like 145. I was probably 165, 170 maybe. And I was, it was a mess. And I sent a picture to my friends. I was like, would you donate if I ran a marathon? They were laughing. They're like, yeah, I'll donate for sure. Dude, you know, you'll die. So I won't even have to pay up. <laughs> and it, it hurt. It was horrible. But that was really the kick in the butt um, for me to figure out that, you know, I needed to get back in shape and, you know, being physically active is really important. And that was 2007 and really I didn't stop until now. What I didn't realize at that point in time, like I had enough eyesight to be able to run marathons without being tethered. It was tough. You know, sometimes it was tough with a lot in marathons where you had like a lot of people because I have, I don't have peripheral eyesight and I wouldn't tell anybody. And I was, you know, I was hiding it. I was in the closet about my eyesight. I didn't, didn't tell people at work didn't tell people in athletics, nothing like that. Hmm. So when I'd run these races, you know, I, I would have to take great precautions uh, to, to not cross paths with people. Or sometimes if I was going to, a, you know, if you run a race and there's a water station, people just cut you off. And I learned, I was like, I have to run, when I run these races, I got to, you know, not do these water stations and get as far away as possible because otherwise I'm going to trip somebody or I can trip or, you know, it could be a mess. 
And um, so I, I created a bunch of different adaptive strategies for being in denial and not letting other people know about my eyesight, which frankly is very unhealthy. I wouldn't suggest that to anybody. And if you're doing that, you know, I hope you take this advice because at some point in time, you just, you have to ask for help and you have to be able to receive help. And that's probably one of the, that's one of the greatest blessings that I think having a difference like an eye condition has helped me because it's helped in all areas of my life. You know, I've, I've had to ask for help and that's one of the hardest things that I thought I ever learned to do. But what really is one of the hardest things is accepting the help when it's provided because <laughs> pride sure. gets in the way. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But um, I kept running these races and really I did not have any true adaptation until I got into super long distance running with like hundred mile races. And I remember I signed up for the, when I was 40, I had run races. I had run, tri, I had done triathlons, did Ironman triathlons. And you know, th those are kind of ugly cause you're riding these bikes and I, um, I would hit potholes, you know, take out rims, take out tires. I learned to have guides there though. And I didn't even realize what I was doing because what I would always do is like on the swim, I couldn't see where the buoys were in the water, but what I could do is I could basically follow another athlete. So I would find another athlete who swims about the same speed or a little bit slower. And I would just follow their, their splash in the water. And that's how I got around. Hmm. And, um, you know, on the bike, same thing. I would pick a biker and I would just follow them. They thought I was stalking them. And, you know, sometimes <laughs> they would get upset. They're like, quick, get off, you know, quit falling. I was like, dude, I can't see. And they're like, what? Right. And, uh, and then I would just, I would take my distance and I, but I would follow them and same thing on the run, you know, so I wouldn't get lost. And uh, so I did start these adaptations of using guides. I didn't realize I was doing it, but this is before I could formally ask for a guide. When I got to be 40 years old, I signed up for the Leadville 100. I was going through divorce and you know, I, I just needed to run. And my step uncle, Ted Epstein, and there's a whole story behind him. He's the one who really inspired me to get like really crazy. But he had done the Leadville 100 back in the day when it first began. And I'd come back to Colorado from Puerto Rico, I was going through divorce and I was you know, just running. And I signed up for the Leadville 100 and when I got there, I, I, I never ran a hundred mile race or anything like that. And what I didn't realize is that, you know, it goes through the night and it like through pitch black on single track trails in the mountains and there's no lights or anything. I was like, Oh no, like, how am I going to, like, how am I going to do this? Cause I can't see in the dark. Right. And, and I didn't know about guides. I wasn't telling people about my eyesight. So I had a really close college buddy and I was like, yeah, I, I need your help you know, to go through the night and, um, and to help me on when it's dark. So he flew in and sure enough, you know, he put on, you know, bright yellow vest and, you know, I, I figured out about headlamps, you know, in these long distance run, people use headlamps and these sighted people do so they could see. So hmm. I found the brightest headlamp I can use. And, um, that's, you know, that was like my first real experience with the guide. And I, I, I didn't, it's come a long way since there because what I've realized with guides is when I'm competing, meaning, you know, running long distances or super fast races, my guide has to be at least 25, a factor 25% fitter than me, whatever that means. Like for distance wise, and go 25% longer speed wise and go 25% faster minute per mile. And um, I just didn't have that at the time. So I kind of eased into it. And, um, since then, you know, I've, I've ran trail races and these hundred mile races all over and I've kind of perfected along the years. Let's see, that was, yeah, that was, uh, I was four. So that was 12 years ago. And I guess over the last 12 years I've perfected, you know, adaptations for, you know, ultra running in a variety of different environments. Like I've ran across deserts, across mountains, across countries, islands, continents, you know, cities, you name it. And, um, you know, my closet up here, I have a whole bunch of different types of adaptive equipment. It just depends on the environment. And my mom has been a blessing and a godsend and a huge integral part to those adaptations too, because she's went with me to all these races. And as I've struggled, she's really been 
a, a brainstorming person who's thought about different solutions, like for anything. And sometimes they work, sometimes they don't work, but we've gotten to a place where really I can do anything um, pretty much on my own. Um, it's a lot easier if I have a guide or somebody, but with these long distance races, sometimes guides just, you know, they twist an ankle or they don't show up or whatever, but I can still compete in the race. And it's, it's been great. Sure. That's amazing. And just kind of going back to, you mentioned the closet with all those, you know, different items, it just kind of give us some examples of yeah. whether it's tethers or other things that people maybe have not even heard of in terms of tools and whatnot. Yeah, for sure. So standard, you know, for, for a visual impairment, I have the standard tethers and one of our local Achilles, uh, runners, Amelia Dickerson, uh, super fast lady. She like ended up making her own, making her own tether. And she told me when I, when I was ready to make one, um, go to home Depot, get like bungee rope and then tie it up. And you know, you can figure out what type of knot, but it, it still has like some kind of rigidity, which I like, I like getting information. So it has like a rigid feel, but it can also, you know, move a little bit and has like a little bit of give, which I like as well, depending on, you know, whether your arm length or stride is the same with your guide. So that's like a standard tether. I also have like a hip tether with a hip belt and then like a bungee shoestring going across to the other person who has a hip tether. And I have like a little clasp like almost like a carabiner so they can clasp together. Not when I ran this race in Greece called Spartathlon, it's 153 miles. You have 36 hours and they required that I be tethered to another runner for the entire distance. Well, I knew I wasn't going to hold on to a tether because it's like the Olympics of ultra running. Like the U S sends us a team of 25. You know, you have, you have to finish your first hundred miles in 22 and a half hours. Most hundred mile wow. races, you have like 30 hours or 36 hours. This one, you have to go 153 miles in 36 hours. So you have to be running all the time. It's like, you know, and most, you know, for two people to run it uh, is like next to impossible. I mean, it was, you know, it, it was, it was like the impossible challenge because, but I don't believe in that word. So sorry for using that, but it was a very challenging challenge because for two people to hold it together for that amount of time across that distance, across that pace, you're going to have everybody's going to have lows during that time and you have to slow down during those lows and then recuperate. So for two people to do that and still get there, you know, anyway, we, we came up with this tether idea with a hip tether. So I could be attached to a person and, you know, we, we had this clasp so that when we got to a place, had to go to the bathroom, we could unclasp and we didn't have to, you know, go in the portal at together, be, you know, squatting in some field or whatever. Anyway, that that's like, th those are the tethers. The other thing that I found to be tremendously helpful that I learned on my transcon are trekking poles. And I use those on the regular now. So I'm a big believer in, you know, these black diamond carbon fiber Z poles and they're, they go, they're not adjustable. They're super light and carbon fiber is rigid. So you get like a lot of information on the, on what you're hitting. So if you're hitting gravel, cement, asphalt, grass, you know, different, different types of things you can get information. And I've learned to run with trekking poles, you know, on trails, on uh, just on the streets, uh, in any type of environment. And Trekking poles have been phenomenal. A lot of European runners run with trekking poles. In America, people don't. They use them more for climbing or descending or hiking. In Europe, you'll see people using trekking poles and they're like, it's an extra point of contact. You know, they'll hit, they'll plant one pole and leap, you know, across a rock barrier or an obstacle and then keep going. And I've learned how to do that. And also when I twist ankles, and I'm about to go down, I can always plant a pole and it saves me from going down like on the steeps and I can still like run fast and independent. When I have poles, people are like amazed. They're like, I have no clue how you do that. I was running down Pikes Peak the other day with a friend and um, they were like, it was watching your feet was like a video game. Like I, I didn't even know where to put my feet and your feet were like all over the place. And for me, it's like, cause I, the way I see now is I see shadows and contrast really well. So, you know, if I'm going down a technical trail, I'm looking for the next shadow. And sometimes I may be stepping on dirt or on a rock or across a chasm, but it's all those shadows that I count on. So sometimes I'm stepping into a culvert and I don't even see it because it's washed out. There's no shadow. And with my poles, I'm feeling, and I'm also recovering when I'm possibly, you know, going down, if you will, 
and I'm able to keep my speed so I can run full speed downhill with these poles. I mean, sometimes you have a wipeout and they're pretty epic wipeouts when you wipe out, right. but, um, you know, no more than a sighted person. Like, you know, it's, in, it, it's incredible. The poles really have been a game changer for me. The other thing too, is the lighting system. So I've all with light, I'm able to see a lot better. And that's been a true piece. Like, uh, I, lo- I lose my rods and cones with retinitis pigmentosa. So one of those, I'm not sure which one, one does color, one does light perception, but it's getting darker for me. So the nighttime is getting darker and I used to be, you know, now I can see like a street light in the night, but I don't see like what's lit up on the ground underneath it. And that, that has always been the case, but it's gotten darker and darker and darker. So I need artificial light and I've went through like a lot of different light sources, like all these flashlights and, you know, um, you know, commando lights, military lighting systems, infra green, mm-hmm. all this different stuff, but I've settled on headlamps and headlamps I think are a tremendous thing. I've headlamps all around my house and I use them for everything now, even during the day, because like in the cupboards or in the refrigerator or when I'm folding clothes, if I just need more light, like the lighting in the house is not enough, even in broad daylight. Like I, I can still do a lot of different stuff with a lot of light, but I put on a headlamp and I use, it. I go to rep when I go to restaurants at nighttime, I wear my headlamp. It's taken a long time to get the confidence to do that. Like, you know, it's like I'm spelunking in a restaurant, people make jokes. And then I, I tell them the story like, Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Like, don't be sorry. Just eat your food. And can I have your dessert? You know, <laughs> but uh, I, I found this lighting system now and they're made in Germany. And, you know, I, I thought that my, I have, I have like had different, you know, uh, companies sponsor me with headlamps. And I just went to the brighter, brighter, brighter. And I wasn't able to, and my eyes have gotten worse. And the, the, there was a point where I had five different headlamps, one on my head, um, two on my vest, on a running vest, and then two on a hip belt. And I was shining it in front of me because I just needed more light to be able to see like curbs and stuff to run independent. Sure. And um, it, it wasn't, it just wasn't enough light. I was like, dang it. You know, like I, I got to get more light. And then I discovered this other company It's called Lupine, L-U-P-I-N-E. They're out of Germany and they make mountain bike lights. And I guess, you know, mountain bikers get lights because, I guess those guys like to mountain bike at night. I'm not sure why, but they do. And they need like super bright lights. So I, yeah, I found this one, this, this guy was talking about, it's called the Betty and it's 5,000 lumen, but it's a legit 5,000 lumen and it's not cheap, but I, I invested, I got this thing. I was like, Oh my gosh, I cannot believe this. And I went and I ran Leadville that year and sighted people were following me. I could have ran Leadville alone it lit everything up so bright. Like mm. I, I could, I can with that thing, I can run independent. It is unbelievable how bright. So, you know, I'm back at it. Yeah, uh, it's kind of funny too, cause I train a lot at nighttime here. You know, there's less cars on the road. I've gotten hit a bunch of times, but there's less cars sure. and uh, the light works phenomenal for, you know, other cars. Sometimes if they're coming too close to me, I always run against traffic. I'll shine it right down. They're like, what are you doing? You blinded me. I was like, dude, you got like two headlights doing the same thing to me. But, um, you know, anyway, the lighting system has been great. I, I, at nighttime, I always have a guide. Most of the time, if they have road shoes, those have reflectors built into the shoes, or I have these little, you know, reflective bands that you could get off of Amazon or Ross or TJ Maxx. They're really lightweight. I always have a guide wear those and I shine the headlamp on those reflectors and I can't see anything except for the reflective thing going up and down because of the contrast. But, you know, I can see what their feet are doing, whether they're taking exaggerated steps, whether it's quick stepping. And I really just follow wherever those things go. I follow and my guide will call out any obstacles, you know, and I call it trail braille and they'll be calling out, you know, rock left, rock left, root right you know, culvert, stepping over, slow down, rock garden, doll heads, fast feet, fast feet, think thin, you know, th- different things like that. The other thing I realized with guiding and adaptations and using a guide, when you're going for long distances and through technical terrain, you want your guide to use less words, one, because it's easier on them. And two, it's easier on you. It's less information to process, you know, running at night with a guide and concentrating for 12 hours straight on what you're seeing. And then the audio cues, 
it's exhausting and like running a hundred miles isn't exhausting enough. Um, and that's one thing that guides have always said to me, you know, they're like, I'd never realized how exhausting it is. And that's the other thing too, why I've always said, you know, I need my guide to be, you know, 25% fitter than me. And actually finding that person is very difficult. Usually they're an elite runner and they're giving up their race to help me. But I found some really, really good people out there. Right. Right. That's awesome. It sounds like you just, as far as research, you're, you're quite the researcher, whether it's, you know, the, the tools, the adaptive tools or, or guides. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, that, that's kind of a, it's a cool thing. Yeah. And I'm, I like that you asked that question about, you know, adaptations, because I think, you know, I've always considered my eyesight to be a curse growing up. And as I've gotten older and more mature, I've realized it's a true blessing, Greg. And, I realized that because with, with the degenerative eye condition, it consistently deteriorates over time. So you create, you always have to create strategies and you create a strategy and it works for a while. Then your eyes change and deteriorate more Then that strategy doesn't work. Then you got to adapt again. And then you got to adapt again. Then you got to adapt again. Well, that has served me so well in everything that I've done in business careers. That's one of the reasons why I succeeded at, general electric i mean they throw crazy problems at you and you have to adapt if you don't adapt and you can't change you will not survive there and that's the other thing they used to say there you know the only thing you count on is change and it's so true but i'm built that way and that's part of my dna because of my eye condition like i've had to do it in every aspect of my being on a daily basis just to function so now I do that in athletics. I've done that in business. I do that with everything I do, writing books, creating a keynote, working with other people, anything that I do, I've ended up becoming a tremendously adaptable, malleable, flexible individual. And I, I attribute a lot of that to my journey with retinitis pigmentosa. So, you know, I mean, it's kind of interesting as I look back, you know, sometimes those curses are actually blessings in disguise and, you know, it is true. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, being adaptable is such a, a key skill, like you said, that can translate into so many areas of our lives and, and benefit us in so many ways. Yeah. And and really, you know, it's it's one of those X factors or superpowers in the in the hard times. And I I just you know, right before this, I went and had coffee with a friend and um when I was hearing their story, it was, just, you know, there was, there were some struggles in there. There were a lot of restarts. There were a lot of, um, you know, failures and you have to pick yourself up and exercise resilience. And when I was thinking about them, you know, send my friend a text after this. And, you know, the thing I'm going to say, which they don't even realize about themselves is you just don't quit. And that's, that's adaptation. You know, quitting is not an option. We, we have to, we have to take that hill. So, However, we're going to, we're going to take that hill. We just got to figure out a new way to do it. And, um, you know, it, it, that, that's a real special thing that I've realized also being a person with a disability, because when I, when I went through my depression, I really came out of the closet about having a disability or difference with this eye disease. And what I've, you know, I have so, half of the people that I talk to on a daily basis now have some type of challenge, whatever it may be. Sure. Um, whether it's a physical, you know, mental, emotional, and it's, you know, it's a real thing. But what I've realized with this population of people, which I'm part of this population, we're tremendously adaptable because what we've realized is we can do anything. We just have to do it differently. But, you know, we, we learn how to do it differently from other people who have gone before us. Like we stand on the shoulder of giants, right? Like those who've gone before us, you know, I, you know, I, I've learned so much from other athletes that do other things or other people that have gone through other things right now too. One of the other things I learned was when I was going, you know, losing my eyesight more and more and more, I was like, why sh I, I should get a mentor for going blind. And when I said this to some people, they thought I was nuts. But I was like, why wouldn't I? Like I get mentors for running, for business, for, you know, law school, for a bunch of different things. Why wouldn't I give them for going blind? So I found a person who has the same thing I have. They're further along than I am we got to be friends. And you know, when I go through a change, this is a person I talk to. And now I serve as a mentor for some other people who are going through the process, but it's a, it's a tremendous thing. Like we, we do stand on the shoulders of giants. It happens with everything, like with, with science. I mean, you know, people build upon the work of people who've come before us, you know, generations before. So why wouldn't we do the same thing with 
like what we're talking about adaptations in sports or adaptations with, you know, going through a, a, a sight loss. Yeah. Anyway, just food for thought. Sure. Great point. Just having folks to relate to, to share experiences with. So, so powerful for sure. Um, but yeah, I definitely want to get into the transcontinental uh, run that you mentioned uh, as far as from, from LA to New York, I believe it was. And yeah. uh, so I know it took you just under two months and you ran, I believe just over 50 miles each day. Yeah, it was, it was, it was a, it was a crazy Forrest Gump time. <laughs> it was crazy. So what I think is important, there's an important piece of run. Like a lot of times people want to know like the, you know, different stats with the run, but the really important part is how it began, how, how it began. And it began when I was in a severe depression and I had stopped driving and my eyesight was dwindling and I was like, I was unemployed. I was like, I don't know how I can even go back and work and read email and do mm. what's expected. I definitely couldn't do it the same way I was doing it before by not telling other people about it. And I was scared to tell people I was going blind because I didn't think I would get opportunities or, or promoted or, you know, whatever. And it's a, it's a real thing. Discrimination is a real thing. I think it's come a long way, but it's still there. And it's very subtle uh, how it happens when it does happen. So I was concerned with that. I was in a severe depression and I was volunteering at a homeless shelter where I volunteer at and help with. And from out of the blue, I had a calling and I, I, I called a calling. I think it, you know, it was from outside of me. I was standing in a hallway and my job was to work a, a clipboard and every day at 10, the doors would open and it was first showers were first come first serve and two people could do two loads of laundry. And my job was to stand there with the clipboard. And when the doors open, take people's names and get them in the showers, out of the showers and get their laundry in and then out and get as many people through as possible. And I was standing there and I had just got my friend Ursula into the shower and I was outside and I was outside the doors. It was like a little hallway and I got a towel and a little travel shampoo and a soap. And I was getting that ready for the next person. Um, when, you know, the people in the shower finished up, I wiped it down. Then I put new stuff in there. I got the next person in and, you know, they had 20 minutes and I was sitting here doing my job, mind my own business. And all of a sudden, like the sound, everything like deafened. And I was sitting there like, Oh my gosh, like what's going on? Like, am I losing my, my hearing? Cause there was like all kinds of ambient noise. You know, there was a kitchen right next to me, the washing machine, you know, was out of sync. It was like, doom, 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 doom. Ursula was in the shower <laughs> singing. And Yo. I'm like, what is going on? Like, and then I had a thought like I am, but it was like a factual thought. Like I am running across the U S and I, I don't know how to describe it, Greg. Like, you know, people think I'm crazy or I thought I was crazy at the time. And I'm a lawyer. I'm like, I can pick anything apart. And then like right after that, it was like everything was zeroed out. And I had like no thought in my head. And then all of a sudden it was like, I am running across the U.S. And then all of a sudden the sound and everything came back. And I was like, what just happened? And mm. it was it was like this thought was pushed into me from outside. And I was in a severe depression right now. Greg, I didn't know if I wanted to go on. I wasn't working. I was just trying to stay alive. And right then I was, you know, I, I was like, I know this just happened. And if I, if I don't hold myself accountable, and tell somebody, I will act like this never happened. I just don't, you know, my plan in the past would have been, I just wouldn't tell somebody about this and I'll just act like it never happened. Cause I don't want to do this. This is stupid. Why would I run across the U S right. and um, I texted my mom right away. And I said, mom, I'm, I'm running across the U S and she said, you know, she texted back right away and said, I'm in. And that was the beginning of my transcontinental run. Mm. And for the, for the next 18 months, like, you know, I trained up and I tried to figure out how to do this. And it's not like a race, you know, le less than at the time, less than 300 people had crossed the U S on foot and hit records go back to like the 1800s. I think now it's just maybe a little bit over 300 have crossed on foot. Wow. And um, there's no rule book. There's no, you know, race, it's an expedition and you got to figure everything out on your, by yourself. And so for the next 18 months, I, I trained up my body. I was kind of running, I was like maybe 30, 40 miles a week at that time. And at the end I was running 300 miles a week in training. And that was still less than what I was planning on the run. And, um, you know, so that, that was, that was the beginning of the run. And, and 
that's important, I think, to know and to tell people for my story anyway, because when, you know, the, the thing I realize is when you are at the pit at rock bottom in the abyss, when you don't think you can go on, when you don't know if you want to go on, you can still make a change. And that, that has been probably the most powerful lesson in my life. And, you know, I've shared with my kids and I share this all the time. I'm like, you know, when, when that happened, it wasn't even my thought. And, and I got to tell you, Greg, like if I didn't do it, it was a survival run. People ask me a lot of times, you know, Oh, you know, was this for a cause or whatever? I was like, no, it was to survive. It was to live. And, um, that's what it was for me. Like, you know, in order to live, I had to get from one side of the U S to the other side of the U S and, you know, there was a lot that went into that. I wasn't working at the time. I was afraid to lose my house. I had three kids I had part-time custody of afraid to lose custody of them. You know, people die out there, get hit by trucks. I didn't know if I was coming back. I mean, there there was, this wasn't like some, Oh, you know, I want to go, you know, do this and get notoriety. There was no prize. I didn't get, I wasn't sponsored. I was doing this on credit cards. I was in a severe depression, going blind. I mean, it was like the worst possible circumstances I could envision, but I went and I did it. And it, it, um, taught me a whole lot. Like I knew about adversity and resilience, but yeah, that there was like no other there. And, uh, so anyway, that's, that's a lot of the genesis of it. Happy to talk more about it, but that that's a real important piece that I just want to highlight for people. Cause a lot of times it's not asked about and, but it's probably one of the most important, you know, things is when it, when it's the toughest, we can, we, we are capable of some of some of our, you know, finest work when we are in the toughest positions. Absolutely. And what a great story. And I appreciate you kind of mentioning the, like you said, the genesis of that and how it was kind of personal inspiration and it kind of just hit you like a ton of bricks. And it sounds like it really did benefit you in many ways afterward as well. Yeah, for sure. I, I, the other important thing too, is we need to listen to that little voice sometimes. Cause a lot of times we think things are coincidence or it's just happenstance, but you know, there's, there's something bigger and at work and we're part of something larger. And a lot of times we think it's coincidence or it's not convenient for us or there's, I mean, Greg, there's never a convenient time to stop life and run across the U S right. Yeah. You know? Like, like it, there's never a convenient, a lot of times people are like, Oh, I got to work. I got to do this. All we have to do in life is die. That's all we have to do. What happens from birth to death is our symphony. It's our masterpiece, if you will. And that's the other thing that I've learned too. I mean, look at my careers. I mean, I went from being, very conventional to unconventional, like a lawyer, a business person. Now I'm a keynote speaker. Like how, how does that work? You know, it's, it's when there are those points in time and points in life, those pivot points, if you will, or those, those times to take a risk to make a change, do you play it safe and be conventional or do you go out there on a limb? And I can tell you, I'm, you know, I'm a, I don't want to say a nut job, but I am kind of a nut job, but, uh, you know, I go out there and I, you know, I go head first, I leap and, you know, leap and the net will appear. That's an easy thing to say. It's a very difficult thing to do. And when I was making those changes, like when I was, you know, moving out of a legal career into a business career, I remember having, you know, close personal friends, family members tell me you're throwing away 10 years of your life, Jason. They're like, you're throwing away 10 years of your life in a, a law, you know, a law, you're going to, you can be a partner at a firm. You can be made, you can be set. I'm like, no, that this is an investment. I'm moving on. And then, you know, I'm 10 years at GE and I'm on an expat assignment living in the Caribbean and Puerto Rico running GE capital. And they're, you know, those same people ask me afterward, wow, how did you do that? How can I do it? I was like, remember when you told me I was throwing away 10 years of my life, throw away 10 years of your life, make a change, take a chance. And this is what could happen. And it's like, you know, the run across the U S I mean, I was in a severe depression, you know, you know, the pits, everything was on the brink. And then I was able, you know, to do it. I wrote a book afterward, you know, places started asking me to speak. I taught myself how to speak and now I'm able to be a keynote speaker. 
And, you know, that's something where, you know, a lot of times it's hard for people to believe in these outlandish things, if you will. Like we hear stories about other people who've done that, but when you go and talk to people who've done truly insane things, it's the same story over and over again. And it's a story of adversity and resilience. And there, there just is no quit in these people. And, um, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. Like it doesn't matter. You can talk to people who've started businesses or done athletic feats or, you know, talk to a person who's been married for 50, 60, 70 years. It's the same type of thing of basically we just don't quit. We keep going on and they, they know about priority. They know about not losing focus and how to be consistent on a daily basis and make, you know, relentless forward progress towards their goal every day. Anyway, that, that was a long stick, but, uh, I hope that helps. Sorry. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, absolutely. Great. I just, I love your message and your analogies and it's, it's awesome. Uh, before we do wrap up here, just a few other things. I know you do have this nonprofit, uh, inspire connection. If you want to talk about that. Yeah. So I, um, one of the things that grew out of this speaking biz was I trained up by volunteering at schools and speaking to youth and, one of the things I realize that's really important is our youth these days are going through so much and it's easily said, but there's a lot of depression, anxiety, there's suicide, and it's a real thing. Those words are said, but not without knowing and feeling kids that are going through this and have experienced it. And uh, what I realized is when I got in front of a audience of kids, I come in and I look like I'm happy, go lucky, Jason, you know, I'm all put together. And then I start telling my story and they're like, oh my gosh, this guy has gone through real struggle. He's still going through it. And, you know, he can still show up and be happy. And that's what I've realized. A lot of adults have went through a lot of tough stuff. And I have a lot of adults that ask me to be able to speak with kids and they've gone through everything. I mean, there's been abandonment. There's been, you know, rape, molestation, abuse, you know, addiction, disabilities, like all this different stuff, but they've gotten through it. And I've realized how powerful it is to put an adult in front of kids and for them to tell an authentic and vulnerable story of struggle and triumph. And that gives kids inspiration and hope. So that's the idea behind inspire connection is to take these kids who are in a state of isolation and create connection by using stories of struggle and triumph. So that's that. I also created a skateboarding program where we give out skateboarding equipment. And my youngest daughter taught herself to skateboard. And mm -hmm. I realized in watching her journey, you know, in order to accomplish a skating trick, you have to fail like hundreds of times. She's coming home with concussions and bruises and like wrecked. And this is a girl, you know, but she keeps going out there. And I'm real. I'm like, wow, that has built self-esteem and confidence. And it inspired me to get this for other kids. And so anyway, we do a skateboarding program and to work with local skate shops. We had skateboards donated and then we give them out to youth who otherwise wouldn't have access to a board or they break their board and they can participate in the sport of skateboarding, which I think is tremendous in building uh, resilience and resolve in youth. So that's a little bit about inspire connection and uh, it's, you know, it's, it's small, but it has an impact and I, I love doing it. Very cool. It's fantastic. Um, as far as books, yeah, I know you did mention you've written uh, some books and any, any in particular you want to mention. I need to do a shameless plug on my second book. I, I, I don't consider myself an author, but I've written two books, so go figure. <laughs> but uh, my, my first book is called Running Into the Dark, and now that is a memoir and the story of the run across the U.S. And uh it really began as a journal to my kids because when I started speaking, my kids would go with me sometimes these talks and after the talk, they'd, they'd be like, dad, I didn't know that part of your story. And I realized they did not understand how I got to this point. And if I die, I want them to know my story. And I, I hopefully they can learn from that if you know we haven't had that many years to do it. So I wrote this journal to my kids. My plan was to spiral bind it and put it, I have a special box for each of my kids with like different, you know, memorabilia, kind of like a hope chest. And I was going to spiral bind it and put this in the 
in their boxes. And I figured when I died, you know, they'd be looking through it and they'd be like, what's this, you know, it's dad's story. And then they'd read it. Well, my oldest convinced me when, you know, she caught me, I was sitting for months at the computer writing this thing. It's like, what are you doing? I was like, ah, oh, writing a little something, writing a book and this, that. And if she got further along and then, uh, one day you know, I was reading a chapter. She's like, dad, you got to publish this. I was like, not, not a chance. I'm publishing a diary. Right. <laughs> and she helped me out. And then she got me the courage. You know, she helped talk me through the courage of publishing it. And I put it out there. Another thing too, like when you're a speaker, everybody asks for your book. I remember one of the, my audience members was like, where's your book? I was like, I don't have a book. They're like every speaker's got a book. I was like, well, I don't. <laughs> but after publishing running into the dark, I did have a book and, and it's been good too. That's a, it's really scary to, to write your story in an authentic and vulnerable manner and to share the ups and downs and all the pimples of your life. But what I've realized is I get emails from people all over the world, Greg, they're like, you know, thank you for writing your story. Like I was able to relate to this part and it meant something in my life. And it's not like, you know, I'm like John Grisham, like, like selling like, you know, millions of copies cause I don't, but somehow, some way people hear about the book and it, it has helped people who otherwise I would never have met or reached. And if the story can help one person, it was worth it. So that's running into the dark. And then the second book is called the success cycle. And that I just uh, launched last year on my youngest daughter's birthday, August 19th of 2021 it was her 16th. So, um, and that's really about when I, when I talk, it's a story about it adversity and resilience. A lot of times when I finished, people would ask me, how did you do that? How did you not quit? And, um, you know, as I thought more about that, I, when I worked at GE, we used to do process maps for everything to try to teach people. Here's how you do point A to point B. And as I thought deeper about that question, you know, how did I do this? How, how was I able to become a Paralympian? How was I able to, you know, run across the U S or go to law school and I couldn't even see, or, you know, take on these three business problems at GE in 18 months that seemed insurmountable. It was the same process for success. And there is a cycle for it. And what I re what I realized was I'm going to, I can do this like on one page. So I sat down, I, you know, I thought about all these things and I put it all onto one page and I call it the success cycle. And it's basically how do dreams become reality? And part of that is failure, what people don't talk about, but with me, I've realized that in every epic thing that I've ever gone after, I've always failed multiple times trying to trying to do it. And you have to pick yourself up and there's a resilience loop in there. And that's this second book called the success cycle. I, I think it's genius. Not that I'm genius, but you know, thinking deep about this and talking to other people and looking how other people succeed and fail. It is genius because it puts it out there and it's you know super simple. And that's, what I do a lot now is I, you know, I, I do breakout sessions for entrepreneurs at different conventions. I'll give the keynote, but I also do a breakout session. I really enjoy that about teaching people about how success happens and how failure is part of that. And, you know, Albert Einstein's quote is saying, you know, uh, failure is just success and progress. And Henry Ford said, you know, failure is the opportunity to, to start again. Uh, Thomas Edison said, yeah, I, I failed. 10,000 times for my one success, you know, <laughs> and right. uh, it's just, it's a huge piece of this. And what I love is, you know, when you find a person who's going through struggle, this is information that they need. They want, they're looking at, if people think they have their life all together, you know, nobody wants anything to do with this book, but it's, you know, on page 143, I have this one page process and I have like a workbook in there and I do an analogy of learning to ride a bicycle and going through a success process and um, it's, you know, I, I, I wish I could get this out to everybody. It's a short read. I think it's, you know, absolutely great. I do like little videos on it, but uh, I wish somebody would have taught me that Greg, when I was going through, you know, what I was going through or, you know, lining up to run a hundred mile race and, you know, failing having to pick myself up because it's all there. And um, anyway, so that, that's a quick plug for the success cycle. I'm super excited about it. And I hope somebody else, you know, if, they, if they're going through a tough time that they can reach out, it's like 10 bucks on Amazon or something like that. But, uh, you know, I, I think the, the thought that it will inspire is something that we all experience. I think just this book is put something that seems very amorphous into a very simplified concept that's easily understandable. So anyway, that, that's a 
that wasn't a quick plug, but I'm excited about this second book. <laughs> oh, yeah. I can hear the passion in your voice. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So just to put a bow on this episode, definitely wanted to give you the chance to give, uh, as far as your website, any contact info, social media, if people want to get in touch. Sure. Yeah. People want to get in touch. Uh, I have a website, jasonromero.net. And my nonprofit is inspireconnection.org. And if anybody wants to email me, you know, feel free to Jason Romero speaks at gmail.com. And, uh, yeah, I, thanks again, Greg, for reaching out. I appreciate the, the opportunity to, to, to get to know you and also to reach your listeners. So thanks a bunch, man. I really appreciate it. I hope one day I'll meet you live when I end up in Florida. Oh yeah. That would be awesome for sure. And again, uh, Jason Romero, really appreciate the time just amazing stories love love your message like i said your analogies how you kind of put things in simple terms really enjoyed it and i uh, wish you all the best be sure to follow the eyes free sports podcast at facebook.com eyes free sports and on twitter at eyes free sports 